Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to the brand new season of Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, kicking off the series in typically pioneering, change-making style, is Mary Ann Medin, founder and CEO of The Soak, a mental health and wellness clinic with a modern service-led approach. Born in Iran and sent to an English boarding school age five, Marianne moved between the two countries until becoming stuck in a post-revolutionary Iran with her parents destitute. Returning to the UK as a refugee with just £10 in her pocket, Marianne worked in a restaurant, studied law, and then spent 22 years in the branding and communications industry. Having lost her eldest brother and father to suicide, Marianne trained as a psychotherapist to better understand her own mental health and that of others. She saw how clinical and impersonal the mental health sector was toward potential users and felt the need to reshape the experience using her communications knowledge. In 2020, she launched The Soak, a Chelsea-based private mental health centre providing the full range of services to adults, families, schools and corporations, delivered by collaborative practitioners in a comfortable, non-clinical environment. It's lovely to have you here. Um, Thank you very much for having me. I want to start at the last few years and the, the soak itself. What precipitated you to actually do something about the instincts that you had about the sector, about mental health? What pushed you over the line, as it were, to make this happen? I was sharing an office with a friend who was had recently set up her own business. And I spoke to her about this idea that I'd had many years before about setting up a mental health centre that would fill all the sort of the gaps that existed in the experience of both the user and the provider of mental health services. And quite simply, she said, this is a brilliant idea. And if you do it, I'll back you. And so sort of what was almost a joke became a daily sort of lunchtime conversation. And that sort of one-to-one conversation became a conversation with more people. And it was, to put it simply, a, a result of the encouragement of lots of different people. I was used to, I have been used for most of my life to being told to sort of calm down and slow down and think smaller. And this was the first time that I'd ever thought of something and everybody not only encouraged me, but encouraged me to see the future potential and how necessary it was. It became a no-brainer and I had nothing to lose, which is a situation that I've found myself in uh, at various points in my life where, you know, I'm not married, I don't have children, you know, I have a manageable mortgage. And I was prepared to sort of take that leap of faith, knowing that the people around me are rooting for me, whether I win or lose, I can count on their support. And that meant a lot to me. So I, yeah. You did it. I did it, yeah. The gap, you talked about the gap and identifying it. How, in your own head, was it possible that no one had seen the gap before? And how did you articulate, or rather, how did you come to see those gaps or the gap itself in your own life? What, what brought you to that point where your analysis was, but why aren't they doing it like mm. this? I think from what I continue to see and what was 
apparent to me then. So I, I had gone for therapy myself and it had become very quickly apparent that I didn't know what I was doing or who I was choosing or what the process would be. And there was nobody I could ask. My relationship was with my therapist and I had a lot of practical questions. How long is this going to take? How do I know if it's working? What is it going to cost me? And so on. The therapeutic relationship is so boundaried that every time I would ask a question, the response would relate to my sort of recovery, so to speak. Mm. The question would be, why do you feel the need to know? You know, why do you feel the need to be in control of this situation? So I, I sense then that this is, that there's something missing here. I want somebody to answer my questions who knows about what's going on in this particular relationship. So not, not something I can Google, but something that's actually, you know, I have spoken to your therapist and this is what she thinks. I then trained as a psychotherapist partly because I am a control freak, as my therapist had sort of tried to <laughs> highlight. Um, your and therapist I, I, was right. <laughs> I wanted it's okay. To know, exactly. You're in safe hands. I, wanted I won't to tell know, anybody. Uh, everybody knows now. <laughs> uh, I wanted to know how it all worked. But that then gave me an insight to what it's like for the therapist as well. And equally, they have a lot of practical needs that if it's left to them to deal with, it doesn't necessarily lead to the sort of the optimal outcome. I think going from that to talking about why it hasn't been done, it's because most of the people who work in this sector are themselves clinicians or practitioners. And they're just not wired to think about things beyond what is going on in the brain of the person who they're sitting opposite. I mean, you'll know, coming from the creative world, you don't allow sort of designers to run a a big agency because they would give their ideas away for free. You know, you always need some people who can say, okay, this is what the process is going to be and this is how we're going to make it more efficient and, and be able to look with an objective eye. And I think that's what has been missing continued. You know, the people who come together to set up mental health centres are usually practitioners themselves. So they're not thinking about it beyond what's going on inside the therapy room. You talked about your, your thesis. The exposition was excellent in terms of why we, we are where we are. Your own journey with mental health, and I touched on it at the beginning, you've had loss, you've had displacement, you've had pretty much, you know, an ex most people in their lives may experience one of those things. And you lost your mum back in October 2021, That's I think right. so. Where do you go with all of this and unpacking it for you? And how has that impacted the way that you have developed the business? I'll go back to my childhood and say that I've sort of carried this melancholy within me um, pretty much from the minute that I can remember. But I've always been very highly functioning. And my mother was alive until not long ago. My father died when I was about 18. I was always not expected to be, but I think I expected myself to be a pillar of strength for them. And indeed for my brothers who, although they were older than me, both seemed more fragile than me in many ways. And I, I think that what I wanted to do was to make people understand that mental health services are for people like me. You don't have to have a diagnosable sort of neurodevelopmental issue or a breakdown. You can be a highly functioning 
perfectly normal, in inverted commas, person and still have issues that would benefit from, from an airing at the very least. You say that about, you know, normal people, undiagnosed, and yet, and yet, you know, that your father passing away, your your brother being a refugee. I mean, these are, these are not regular things, Mariam. And I just wonder at the time, and you said, you know, I wanted to be a pillar of strength. Why did you feel that you needed to be? Uh, because my parents weren't, and somebody had to be the grown-up. My parents had us when they were very young and were both emotionally quite fragile people in different ways and entirely different ways. So I just learned that in order to keep the peace, and I don't mean in terms of sort of raging arguments, I mean in terms of my general happiness of my my parents and the atmosphere that we were a part of, not all the time, but during school holidays and so on, you know, we had to sort of grin and bear it. I don't remember ever until adulthood thinking or knowing that I didn't like boarding school. It was, in fact, I was walking up Regent Street about 20, 25 years ago and there was a smell. And it was that smell that suddenly transported me back to boarding school. And in that moment, I felt my heart sink. And as my heart sank, I thought, oh, my God, this is the feeling that I had all of those years. But if you asked me as a child, you know, how do you like boarding school, which a lot of people did because I'd been sent to boarding school at such a young age that adults would constantly sort of say to me, what is it like being at boarding school, age five, six, whatever I was? And I remember having a stock answer saying, it's fantastic. I'm with my friends all day and in the evening. And I think that just became a sort of a a well-worn phrase that didn't mean anything by the end of it. So, yeah, it, it was by compulsion, I suppose, that I learned to grin and bear it. And partly, I suppose, as part of a an upbringing in the UK and sort of the 70s where you didn't sort of make a fuss and you just got on with it. And there was no choice. You know, you ask me the question as if that I had a choice. I didn't have a choice. If I wanted to make something of my life, then I couldn't afford to stop and sort of take stock of what was going on. I just needed to keep soldiering on through. And to some extent, I still do that. I don't really stop to reflect a great deal. I'm very good with sort of my own thoughts and in my own time, but I don't, yeah, I don't let it stop me from from getting to whatever the end goal is. Stay with me for much more from my business shaper. It's Marianne Medin. She'll be back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Innovation Series, and they can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Natasha Knight invites business founders to share their industry insights and practical advice for those of you thinking about getting into an industry and starting your very own thing. In this clip, focusing on the health and wellness industries, we hear from Ruby Rout, CEO and co-founder of Wooker, the UK's first eco-friendly period underwear brand. The Mishcon Innovation Series. Insights from founders for your future business. In association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishcon Dereya. Start at the small scale, something that I learned, and I think one of the reasons that we became successful was when I launched, I only launched with one product. 
it is very easy to get overwhelmed with like so many choices and willing to give so many choices to people, but create a product that actually does the job and stick to it for a quite a bit of longer period of time till you get the grasp of all idea of like how to run the business. Because easily you will get like quite a lot of people come in and telling you like, oh, can you do this in like different style, different colors or with any other wellness product as well, I think so. And um, you will get like overwhelming feedback, but I guess stick to one thing and do best at one thing before you start diverting or trying a few other different things. I guess the other thing I would definitely would say is like, don't get put off by how much it costs to set up a business. There are so many things that you can hustle your way through in the early days. Make a prototype, you know, talk to your friends and families. I think that is the best way to get started. I clearly remember this two-day MBA course that I did in, in London called Lean Startup Machine. The idea was you go pitch your idea and if people love the idea, they will form a group and you create a business there and then. So that's how lean you should be. You should not think that, okay, these are the things that are going to be obstacle in front of me, but like do a small steps at a time and hustle your way through the first stages. And that's exactly how I did it. The Mishcon Innovation Series. In association with Jazz Shapers with Mishcon Derea. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today is Mario Medin, founder and CEO of The Soak, a wellness and mental health centre. You came as a refugee. And how old were you when, when that was the case? Fifteen. Fifteen. And you had a tenner in your pocket and you had nowhere to stay. And you just talked before about you just you just keep on going. And in your own words, you sort of had to just soldier on whenever. Could that person have imagined that they would have set up their own branding and communications business however many years later? Or was it just you arrived there and that's where you were and then you did that? Because I'm just wondering how much of, you know, we sometimes we think about entrepreneurialism as a, as a very positive action and, and everyone, it's, it's wonderful and it's uplifting. Yours sounds like it's rooted in survival and next step. Is that right? Yeah, I, knew, I knew that I needed to be able to stand on my own two feet. At that point, that's as far as my ambitions went. I needed a roof over my head. I needed to be safe. And I needed to sort of have some sort of security. My mother, the last thing she said to me as before she went back to Iran, because she, she traveled to the UK with me, left me here and then went back, she said, I, I'm leaving you here because you've promised me that you'll get an education. And, and you know, leaving a 15-year-old in London, you can imagine as a parent, you're thinking, oh my God, how is this going to pan out? And she was very worried about me sort of just thinking, hey, I'm in London. It's the 80s. Never mind that I, I didn't have two pennies to rub together, but generally as a young person, you might prioritize other activities over education and sort of stability. So she did say to me that if you don't get an education, don't come home. Um, she pretty much threatened me and said that she, you know, she would not be supportive of my life in any way, shape or form unless I took the opportunity that had been given to me, which was 
simply to be in the UK when there were thousands, if not millions, of others in Iran who were stark and couldn't leave. But in the UK with no money. Within the UK with no money. With no money and nowhere to stay. Yeah. And no school signed up, nothing. No. Well, (laughs) I had said for for the sort of preceding two to three years when I'd been stuck in Iran, I'd kept saying, you know, get me back to the UK. I need to go back. And my parents would say, we've got, we've got nothing to give you. We can't send you back to a private school and do all those things that you had as a child. And I kept saying, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And in fact, one occasion with extended family, the topic came up and those other members of our family said, Mariam, of course she'll be fine. Ah, oh, she's she could do anything. Why do they say that? I have no idea. Genuinely, I have no idea. And my mum, when she left and gave me that £10 note, she also gave me a return ticket to Iran and said, if you can't cope, you can come home. But don't use it if you've been out partying and then you just think, I've had enough and I want to go back. I did have the option of giving up, but I couldn't use it because I'd have been so humiliated Mm. in front of all of those people who'd believed in me. And actually, those particular relatives who now live in Paris... They continue to be sort of my cheerleading squad. And every time I do something, they're like, of course you did. Of course you did. Course. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm filled with doubt. They, they sort of give me that boost to make me believe that I could do it. And it started when I was 13, 14. Well, they must be right yeah, because so. this is the person in front of me who set up their own business twice and who got a, a law degree as well, just thrown in the middle, just just because. And we're going to be hearing a lot more from her. Um, she's Marianne Medin and she's my business shaper today. It doesn't do justice to your life to do what I'm about to do, which is say, and then you set up a business and then you move from the world of uh, advertising and branding into the mental health because that is sort of 15, 20 years of your life. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for a moment. So we're going to suspend the fact that there would be 50 hours of conversation we could have about every single moment in between. In terms of the way that you have led this business and the experience you had leading a different business in the world of branding communications is your style of leadership looking through the lens of it's a project we charge money i have clients has that informed a business-like positively put business-like approach to managing what are very personal issues has that worked easily for you or have you had to adapt the way you think about the mental health business versus the branding business It's not so much that we've had to change the way we think, or I've personally had to change the way I think. It's much more a question of, if I was a customer, for want of a better word, what would my expectations be? So that's the significant difference between what existed and what we bring to the table. I treat the clients who come to the soak as if they were my clients from a previous business. It's not relevant to me what they're coming there for. And you won't call them a control freak if they say, how much is this? How long will it take? No, How do I know if I'm getting better? And in fact, the whole reason I, pretty much every single element and service that exists at the Soak, certainly from the client perspective, has come from personal experience. Mm. So I wanted to be able to pick up the phone and speak to somebody who could tell me how to choose a practitioner they would be able to give me information on all the practical stuff. They would be able to give me options and tell me a little bit about the process. And then 
after I'd seen my practitioner, I wanted to be able to talk to somebody and say, actually, I didn't like them or I, mm. you know. Practical stuff. I'd like all the practical but, uh, stuff. And on the other side, though, Mariam, this is the thing, as someone who has had many impacts on your mental health for, for really good reasons. I mean, properly, they in the, in the parlance, it would be externalities that have happened to Mariam. This has not come from your own, even if you have a sense of melancholy, even if the family is predisposed to depression mm. and anything else that might be true. Stuff has happened to you. Has it changed the way you think about leadership? Because actually, when you're dealing with people's health, even though that you are giving them what clients want... It's a different ball game. The product is improving mental mm. health. Has that mm. changed your your view of how this business ought to be run? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, it, the way that I am sort of leading now compared to the way that I was leading even five years ago, it's night and day. It's very, very different. And just give me an example of how it's different. Just one example. Well, I don't know. I, I might sort of just come across as a, a, you know, might be showing my age, but I do find myself sort of often thinking things like, young people, you can't tell them to show up on time these days and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. But you can't say that, you know. And I'm much, much more aware of sort of work-life balance now, which means that there's a huge change compared to when I was leading a creative agency where... Nobody went home before sort of 10 o'clock in the evening. Quite right um, too. <laughs> so um, there, there are things that I'm learning every day about being a sensitive and thoughtful leader. But in terms of the business itself, no, I, I think I still have the same thoughts. You know, is the client getting what they need? Are we doing a good job? You know, I, I'm not interested to some extent on what's going on inside the therapy room. I haven't tried to influence that in any way, but I want every single step of the way outside the therapy room to be, you know, every single touch point, so to speak, to be affected by good service, feeling safe, feeling secure, feeling cared for, all of those things. And the priorities have changed as well. Before I worked in a business where ultimately the client was always right and they paid the bills. So even if they had a terrible idea, uh, ultimately, you, you know, I had a small agency. I couldn't afford like the big agencies to say, no, if you don't do it our way, go away. So I deferred to the client or to the invoice, I should say, being paid a lot more often than I would now. Now clients come to us, they don't necessarily know what's best for them. So we really have to think about what is in their best interest. We'll have our final chat with my guest today, Mariam Medin, and we've also got some Eliane Elias to join her. And that's coming up in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Mariam Medin is my business shaper just for a few more minutes. As I've been talking to you, the thing that strikes me is, your, is the look in your eyes, which obviously you can't see, but I'm going to describe them. There's a certain power in the way when you talk, you look, and, and it is that, that sense of um, you have to just keep going. And that sense, you said something to me which I thought was really important about I don't stop and think about what I need to do, I just carry on. Do you ever give yourself a break? Do you ever say, it's all right, Mariam, you can stop for a bit. You don't have to open the next thing. You don't have to keep driving. Can you ever just sort of settle and be nice to yourself? <laughs> no, I don't think I'm there yet. 
I'm hopeful that this will be my last job. I started in law, then went into branding, and finally, in my 50s, found what I wanted to do. And I'm enjoying it. It's stressful, it's exciting, it keeps me awake at night, but I feel like I do have an end goal. I'm 54, I want to stop working when I'm 60, and in the meantime, I'm giving it all I've got. So, no time for a break now. But is that thing that's driven you, which is... I'm going to call it consequences of failure, but it's really just about survival, actually, in your life. Is that still burning brightly, or has it morphed into something else? Do you still fear for the fact that that young teenager with a tenor in her pocket is still not going to have a roof over her head, or has it evolved? It's, it's evolved. I still don't feel like I've quite made something of my life in the sense that I could leave How a can legacy. you feel that? Sorry, how can you feel that? That's a cra- because I'm I'm that's just I'm crazy still, talk, I'm as they still say. running. I'm still running. I yeah. haven't had the chance to. But that's of, your choice, isn't it? To run. It, it is. It is. Um, I still haven't got to the point where I can think. Okay, I can stop now. But do I have the same fear? No. I mean, I think the fear above anything else that I had in those days was that I was alone, and now I know I'm not alone. I know that there are plenty of people to pick me up if I fall. And I am very unlikely to be without a roof over my head due to the kindness of, of those around me. Can I ask um, you a question about the, Im- the immigrant thing, yeah. though, and the refugee thing? Is the biggest fear of when, when you landed then, if you can go back, is the biggest fear that you are alone or is the biggest fear that you won't survive, literally? I'm just wondering, because it's a really interesting point you make about being alone and... And all that. I think it's a combination of both. I won't survive because I'm alone, perhaps, mm. is the thought process. I was very, very lonely. And I think some of the experiences that I had then, I wouldn't be able to put up with now. Just too old and too tired. But, um, but now you've created a team. You've created a family. You've yeah. got your collaboration is, I guess, your answer to the question of being alone. And do you see, is this just now, is this peak, Mariam? Are we looking at basically the best six years of your working life ahead of you? Is that how you're looking at things? Is that how you feel? Yeah, that's, that's, what I, that's what I hope for. I'm learning all the time. And with every sort of passing week, I think this is going to be a better week than the last one. And involve opening in and new places exactly, internationally. Exactly. Yeah. And I want to... I want to do something that's great for business. I want to do something that is going to change the landscape of mental health for everybody, not just private providers, which have to sort of clean up their act to some extent and provide all the things that people need, but also set a precedent for anybody looking for therapy, whether they're paying for it or not. That's really important. I think I'm one of the very lucky people that gained a great deal from being a refugee in this country back when refugees were still welcome. You know, I had my education paid for and I was able to take advantage of the hospitality of this country to make something of myself. I do feel that I'd like to give something back. And so, you know, we've got a foundation and that's quite important to me. And being able to take that one step further you know, we, we want to collect data and analytics and make information available on an open source for all practitioners to be able to access it. And I think those things are bigger picture things that would make me feel that I've, 
I've earned the right to sit down. But until then, it goes on. Well, it's really great you're not tough on yourself. I mean, I suppose there is that to <laughs> celebrate at this moment. I think you've been contributing beyond. But anyway, that's just, what do I know? Uh, good luck. Thank you. Be kind to yourself. Thank you very much. You're doing amazing things and you will continue to do so, I'm sure. Just before I let you go off and do more amazing things and push yourself very hard, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? I have chosen Melody Gardot, So We Meet Again, My Heartache. And I think it's because I've sort of made room for that melancholy that I spoke about. And I also now run a business where we hope, the best we can hope for people who have you know, chronic long-term sort of mental health issues is that they find a sort of peace around their depression or anxiety or whatever it is. And this seems to talk to that. The lyrics of this song seem to talk about sort of just accommodating that side of yourself. Melody Gardot with So We Meet Again, My Heartache, the melancholic song choice of my business shaper today, Mariam Medin. She talked about having nothing to lose, and I think about that in the context of her landing as a refugee, as well as the fact that she just created this latest business. She talked about the reframing of mental health and how critical is that right now in terms of the way that we think about dealing with mental health issues and questions and she's doing a fabulous job of ensuring that we do indeed think differently and finally her on a personal note i'm not done yet if anything summed up her attitude towards her own life and her own sense of what she wants to achieve it would be that that's it from me and jazz shapers have a lovely weekend jazz shapers on jazz fm in partnership with mish it's business but it's personal We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers.